If you're not happy with something that's going on around you or the situation that it's in, you can't look to other people to create that change for you. You have to make that change. And that might hurt. But how much is it going to hurt compared to turning around and looking back at your life in 10 years' time and saying, I should have changed it then or I could have done this differently? Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Wangan Chatterjee and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. If you're feeling lost in life or lacking in motivation, I think today's conversation is going to be right up your street. Today's guest has survived cancer twice. He survived being hit by a truck at 70 miles per hour. And by all accounts, he shouldn't really be here. Yet James Golding has gone on to become a world record-breaking endurance cyclist and raise over £4 million for charity. And he now believes that anything is possible and that all of us can achieve anything we set our minds to. Now, during this powerful conversation, James talks us through the timeline of his life so far, from his initial cancer diagnosis, to the emergency surgery, which gave him a survival rate of just 5%, and then from recovery against the odds, to a horrific near-fatal road traffic accident, a second bout of cancer treatment, followed by depression, that was even harder for James to overcome. James' account is moving and honest, with a thread of positivity and resilience running through it. We explore where this comes from and why he turned to his incredible cycling challenges as a means to give back to those who'd cared for him. James has a remarkable ability to not get disheartened by setbacks, and he's experienced some pretty major ones. His attitude, he tells me, is that you should always move forward. Take one small step at a time, but keep an eye over your shoulder to remember where you've come from. Words that might seem trivial or cliched from anybody else sound anything but when James shares them within the context of his life story. He's someone who really does embody the term inspirational. When we recorded this conversation earlier on this year, James was just about to embark on something called the Race Across America, also known as RAM, the world's toughest bike race with the plan being to cover over 3,000 miles in just nine days. And his goal at that time was to win. Unfortunately, an untimely bout of COVID sadly derailed his hopes in that race, but I feel confident he'll somehow use this setback as a jumping off point to achieve even more. This is a remarkable life story that I'm pretty sure leave you feeling inspired to take positive action in your own life. I hope you enjoy listening. Now, before we get started, I wanted to quickly remind you that it is now possible to listen to each podcast episode without any sponsor reads at all. That option is available both on Apple Podcasts and on Supercast for people who are not on Apple. It's only £3.99 per month which I think is incredible value, that's under £1 per week. If you would like to take advantage of this and support the show, all you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear, this podcast will, of course, continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. On the subject of sponsors, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. 
Now, good quality nutrition is of course an essential pillar to get right for our health, for our physical, our mental, and our emotional health. And in an ideal world, I would much prefer it if everybody got all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotics, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. AG1 has been in my own life for about three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really tasty. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. If you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access an exclusive special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system, especially at this time of year. You can see all details of the special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. And now, my conversation with James Golding. I've been pretty excited to talk to you ever since we started to interact on social. And there's kind of like so many different places I think we could go with your story, which is super inspirational. I think for me, the place to start is you have had cancer twice. Mm -hmm. You have been knocked over by a truck 70 miles an hour yeah by all accounts you shouldn't be here yeah but you are and there are many people around the world i know because they tell me all the time who are struggling who feel that they've got no motivation to get out of bed that life is not going the way they want it to go and they feel stuck in a rut yeah what would you say to them i've been there i've I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this a different way and say that in many respects, and I normally put far more context behind me saying this before I do it, but I think cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me because of the way that it changed my life and because of the way that it changed my outlook on life. It made me realise that there was far more to life than the things that were holding me back, the things that were causing me to be in exactly the same position as those people we've talked about that don't want to get out of bed in the morning, that don't feel that there's anything there for them. We find ourselves um, quite often stuck in this, um, I call it third gear where there's there's no extra there's no there's no there's no push in the morning and there's nothing above a certain level that you get to and you're literally going through the motions and that's not to say that I don't still have periods of time like that because I do still have periods of time like that I've dealt with I've dealt with the black dog as we call it sitting by the bed and not wanting to get out of bed in the morning and feeling like there's nothing there in fact um, again normally we would talk about this a bit later on but actually I think the worst period 
in my recent life was between 2014 and 2016. Um, I didn't have cancer at that point in time. I'd had cancer. I was um, in recovery. I was riding my bike. I was working with a couple of um, charities, but I was suffering with depression at that point in time. And there was a trigger that changed that, which was my son drawing a picture of the entire family. And everybody on that picture was smiling apart from me. And it was at that point in time that I turned around and went, the only person that can change this is me. I'm the only person that can create change in this situation. It's not anybody else that's around me. It's not, it might be the environment that I've put myself into, but it's not Louise, it's not the kids, it's not my dad, it's not my mum, it's not the people within my circle, with my close circle, but the only person that can change this is me. And I then went and started speaking to somebody to get the help that potentially I should have got years ago, but wasn't ready to get that help. Yeah. If you're not happy with something that's going on around you or the situation that's in, you can't necess- you can't look to other people to create that change for you. You have to make that change. And that might hurt. But that's going to hurt now f- to get the better outcome further down the line and how much is it going to hurt compared to turning around and looking back at your life in 10 years time and saying I should have changed it then or I could have done this differently. I don't want to be that person that I don't want to be a person that turns around and goes, could I have done that? Should I have done that? I, I've i learned, and I wasn't that person. Yeah, I wasn't that person. I was the person that would go through the routine, that would just go through the motions and be unhappy because that was almost what society said that we should do. Yeah. Cancer was the best thing that happened to you. Yeah. You said it now, I've circled it when I've been researching you. To many people, that's quite a provocative statement. It is. It is provocative. Um, But there are a lot of people that I say that to that look at me and go, I get it. I understand where you're coming from. I understand how it changed your life. And again, something else that I've turned around and said is that if I met the me before having cancer, I wouldn't like me. If I met me in 2004, 2006, I wouldn't probably wouldn't want anything to do with me because I was in that rut that we've just talked about. I was in that routine of get up in a, go, getting up in the morning, going to work, um, doing my job, um, going out on a Thursday night, going out on a Friday night, going out on a Saturday night, sitting, sleeping, doing whatever all day Sunday and going back to it Monday and moaning Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and doing it again on a Thursday. And it was about what watch I was wearing, what phone I owned, what car I was going to buy next after I've just bought the new one. It was all materialistic. It was all, it was, it was all about how much money I could earn and um, where that was going to take me. But there was no, there was no, there was no nutrition in my life at that point. There was nothing. There was nothing that made there was nothing good about what I was doing. It was a, it was what I believed from the people that I was surrounded by and the situation that I was in, that I believed that's how I should behave. Did you know at that time that you weren't happy or did you feel, yeah, this is it. You know, I've, I've got a bit of cash. I've, I can go out with my mates at the weekends, uh, drive a nice car. Yeah, this is it, man. Yeah. I've made it. Yeah, and I think that I think, I don't think I, I don't think I had the opinion of that I'd made it. 
but I certainly think I had the opinion um, of um, I'm doing well. But that was because of, I think that was because of, um, I was told, I was always told that I'd never do well. And the judgment of doing well, from my point of view, and I think it's, I think the, um, the message has changed a lot over the last, probably over the last 10 years um, with the release of the internet and, and well, with the, the up spike in, in internet and podcasts and the things that we're now able to see, we can actually, we can actually see that it's not all about sitting in a certain area and out looking and going, well, he's clearly done well for himself. He's got a nice car. He's done well for himself. He's got a nice house. He's done well for himself. He's got three houses or et cetera. It's now more about, um, hasn't he done well for himself? They've achieved X. Too often, I think we're always looking forward at the next thing. One of the things that annoys me more than anything, as soon as you finish an event on a bike, like for example, I, I said this morning that um, I can guarantee you that as soon as we finish our next event, within a day or two, somebody will turn around to me and say, so what's next? Yeah. Not, it's taken you six years to get here. It's taken six years of hard work. It's taken 11 years of dreaming to get to where you are now. What's next? Yeah. And when you see people buy a new car, so what are you going to have after this? Why, why do I need to have something else after this? Yeah. This plays out in all of our lives to some degree. I think it is how we're conditioned. One of the themes that I've been talking a lot about on this podcast over the past six, 12 months really is this idea that happiness is not the same as success. It can be for some people if you're intentional about your life and your choices, but for most of us, we're not. We are unconsciously living and we end up, you know, going down a certain path that we think we're meant to do. We end up there, maybe like you in your 20s with, yeah. you know, thinking, yeah, this is it. I, I'm earning a bit. I'm going out with my mates. You know, th th this is kind of life. But that what next question I think is, is massive because what next by definition is future focused yeah. and not content, not happy in the present. Yeah. Um, I think there, there is, there is, I think you always have to have in your mind of a what's next because the world keeps moving forward. But in the same sense, um, we don't, like you say, we don't sit and value to it. So one of the things I talk about quite a lot is reflection. I think that all of us as human beings have this big, um, not not problem but we we have this inability to actually sit and reflect on what we've actually achieved in our lives to be able to look back and go do you know what i've i've i'm i've done all right really um when and i don't necessarily mean in terms of our earnings in terms of our house or our car or those material objects which which come and go um in terms of what you've actually achieved so when i'm talking to somebody and they say oh i would love to do um the london to paris or i'd love to do the london marathon or i'd love to climb kilimanjaro but i could never do it i go well you've already climbed a mountain in your life anyway you've already achieved so much more and actually some of the key monumental things that you achieved within your life you did in the very early stages of your life without um without 
the internet without the assistance of others, without a coach, without anything else. So yesterday in a speaking engagement, I stood in front of 80 people and said, what's the most impressive thing that you've ever achieved in your life? The most impressive, admirable thing you've ever achieved in your life. I'm asking you now, what's the most impressive, admirable thing you've ever achieved in your life? I know the answer to this question and I met you half an hour ago. Now, I feel my answer may be skewed by having watched your TED Talk. <laughs> so I'll pretend I haven't seen your TED Talk, right? And you're I'm asking not sure me, that counts. But. Uh, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, well, look, I, I'll tell you, I'll, let me answer that in two separate ways. Uh, if you, if without thinking, without thinking about your TED Talk, without thinking about preparing for my conversation with you, what's the most impressive thing I've achieved in my life? Um, I'd probably say... Being involved in the creation and the bringing up of my two wonderful children. Walking. Learning to walk. You learned to walk between nine months old and 12 months old. You had no experience. You had no knowledge. You had no internet. You had no coaches around you apart from your parents that you aspired to, to be able to do the same as them. And you dragged yourself across the floor and you picked yourself up on a bit of furniture and you fell over. And you dragged yourself across the floor and you picked yourself up on a bit of furniture and you fell over. And you did it over and over again. And now you get up in the middle of the night, you walk down the corridor, through the bathroom door, and you go to the toilet and you walk back to bed without even thinking about it. Yeah. So if there's something in your life that you want to be able to go and achieve, don't tell me that you can't do it because you did that between 9 and 12 months old. And now you have 20, 30, 40 years experience of falling over and picking yourself back up again you have the internet you have the textbooks you have the ability to communicate your goals and dreams with a whole host of people some of which will walk away some of which will laugh at you and tell you that you're not able to achieve it but some of them will stand by your side and they will do everything within their power to help you achieve that goal yeah the ted talk would have influenced my answer <laughs> um and i really this is such an important point i think because that can almost sound trivial to people. Yeah, okay, all right, mate, I get you. I, I learned how to walk, okay. Well, first of all, I've been learning from people who are in AI and who are in engineering to say we still can't um, teach a robot to walk like a human. I think the what you actually have to do to be able to walk is frankly... I think just one of the most incredible things mm. in terms of what your brain has to do, balanced, you know, two sides of the brain, you know, all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So that's one aspect. But I think what you just said is it's not trivial at all. It's actually so much more powerful because of your story, because of what you've been through. And I think let's, you know, let's get into that. Let's get into the context, right? You've mentioned where you were in your 20s, in terms of work, mm -hmm. maybe maybe paint us a picture of the run-up to 2008. Um, well, two, yeah, 2008. Um, I was always, I think if we, even, if we even go back a little bit further than that, um, at school I was identified by my mum as being different to the other kids, which... Um, I didn't I didn't engage with the kids 
in my village or I, I did engage with them, but I didn't get engage with them in the same way. I wasn't the football kid. I wasn't the rugby kid. I tried to be the rugby kid. Um, I tried to be the football kid. Um, I was good at swimming and I found riding a bike, a mountain bike when I was um, sort of 10 or 11 years old. And that was something that I, that I kind of fell in love with. I think it was perhaps the simplicity of, of a bike that can take you such a long distance or, or you can go anywhere that you want to yeah. on it. Um, we then, I then moved up to secondary school. So in, in my primary school days, there was, I think we were the biggest class in the history of the school and there was about 30 kids in the class. Now my mum and dad had split up when I was, um, when I was about three years old and they spent a long time arguing over different factors, um, court appearances about who I was living with, when I was living, where I was living, what school I was going to, all these different things, whether, it was dad's opinion and he was right or whether it was mum's opinion and she was right it wasn't it it was it was a fractious um relationship i lived with my mum predominantly and my my stepdad and i my dad was um married with my stepmum and i i don't think i really as much as i thought at the time I had stability. I don't think looking back on it that there was really any stability because I was always split between two areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in secondary school, um, I didn't, again, I didn't really fit in very well. There was an element of bullying. Um, there was an element of me then reflecting that bullying onto other people, which if you look back at may have manifested itself as bullying, but that was never what it was meant to be. It was the emotions that I was going through at the time. And, um, and I say that because when you look at the Red Bull video, somebody that was in my class actually commented on it, that I never left school at that period of time. Um, and actually I was, I was the bully and I replied to the guy and I said, I'm sorry if you felt that I bullied you, but I never did. You clearly didn't know the things that were playing out in my life. I never even used to go on the school bus to school because I used to get my mum to take me to school from the village we lived in because of the grief that I would get on the school bus. And, I stopped going to school at 14 years old and that caused um, huge ruptions within my mum and dad. Um, then arguing again, mum, I was one of the first kids that was allowed to leave school early on the proviso that I went into an apprenticeship scheme, but um, that wasn't going to work. Um, Why? that wasn't going to work for my dad at that time because he wanted me to sit my GCSEs. And I get why he, I get, I sometimes find it difficult to talk about because I don't want to sound to my dad like I'm having a go at him because I'm not, because I understand why he did what he did and the principles that he had. That's fully understand it. But these are things that if we're now talking about my life and how we got to that point, then these things, I need to be able to talk about these things. So that then changed the dynamic again. I learned how to become a plasterer and I got on very well with it, but I ended up working with a guy who lived a long way away. So I'd ride my bike to his, his house every day, 10 miles each direction, 10 miles there in the morning, do a day's plastering and then drive back. So I was an incredibly fit kid. Um, and then my mum and stepdad split up and I um, then went to live with my dad at his house. At this point, I then went to work at a bike shop locally um and after a period of time i decided to leave there and i remember my dad saying um after a couple of weeks you need to find a job within four weeks or you need to find somewhere else to live and i went to work at a um 
a building materials testing factory in Daventry. Um, and I hated it. I hated everything about it. It was clocking in in the morning and doing the same thing day in, day out. Bucket of gravel would come in. You'd put it in the sieves. You'd wash it through. You'd shake it through. You'd, you'd rat, you'd, you had to, you, the, the sieves were all different grades. And then you'd take the sieve out and you'd have to weigh it and what was in there and write out this chart and give it to somebody who'd do the calculations on it. Yeah. And I lasted about four weeks. Um, and at that four weeks, I walked into a local estate agents in Daventry, um, guy called David Rose, who I'd known my dad through, um, through his building firm was, um, good friends with a guy called Stuart Garner, who owned a local estate agents and Dave Rose used to work for Stuart. So I'd met Dave at these garden parties and things that yeah. we used to go to every now <laughs> and again. And I walked into, to Rose and Sargent as it was estate agents in Daventry and I, had my head shaved up to up to here i'd got purple hair i was racing mountain bikes at the time and i was dressed in this factory tracksuit and i turned around to dave and said um i'm jimmy golden johnson and he was like oh, oh i haven't seen you for years I was like, have you got any jobs <laughs> and he went yeah i have actually <laughs> can you um come back on saturday and i said yeah, I can come back Saturday. So I went around the corner to a hairdressing salon that my mum used to own and spoke to Nikki and said, I need to come in on Saturday morning. Can you colour my hair back to the same colour that it is and cut it? And she was like, okay. So I went back in the ne- in that Saturday morning. She recoloured my hair. So no purple hair anymore. No purple hair, cut it. I went and bought a pair of trousers and a shirt. I went in and sat down with Dave Rose and he said, um, okay, we, we talked about various different things. Um, and I remember one question he said to me, he said, if I asked your girlfriend, um, what you're like, what would she say? And I turned around and went, well, she'd, she'd say I was all right. And he was like, that's not an answer. That's not an answer. And we talked for a little while. And then he said, look, can you start on Monday? And I went, yeah, yeah, I can. So I started on the Monday, um, rang the other company and said I, that I wasn't going back. Now this was no, you know, I didn't let them down. This was no, <laughs> this was no, nothing out of the ordinary for this company. You know, it was a fast turnover of of staff in there anyway. So I started at the estate agents and um, bought a mobile phone a couple of days later that was a Nokia brick back in those days. It was ninety, what would it have been? It would have been ninety, probably ninety eight at that yeah. point, um, and. Um, I started as an estate agent and I didn't get on very well in Daventry. Um, I was doing my best there, but then he moved me over to the rugby office. And within two days, I think I was in Daventry for about six weeks, maybe eight weeks um, and didn't sell anything, didn't put anything on the market. And then I got the opportunity to go to the rugby office, which was the second one. Um, And I went over there and within two days of being there, I'd sold a house. And that was the beginning of me then becoming an estate agent, um, which... I know people will turn around and go, oh, estate agents. And the, they do get, there are some really bad ones out there and there are some that work particularly hard. And um, I remember in particular one conversation I had with a couple who were looking at two houses and I actually convinced them to buy the cheaper house because they wanted to do stuff to the house. And actually, if they'd have bought the more expensive one, they wouldn't have been able to afford to yeah. do any of the things that they wanted to it. But whereas they could buy this other one having a baby and they could turn it into a home. Yeah. So I, I, one of the things I always talk about with sales is that the first thing that you need to do if you're going to be any good at sales is find out what somebody needs. Forget about what they want. 
It's not about what they want because you'd have people that would turn around and say, we want four bedrooms, we want an ensuite, we want a lounge, we want a dining room. And you turn around and say, well, okay, why why do you want four bedrooms? And they said, well, we've got two kids and we want a spare room or we want the study. So if I can find you a three-bedroom house with a lounge, dining room and a downstairs study, would that do? And they go, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's, it, again, it comes about matching those people up. But anyway. I- but, but that speaks to also this wider point, doesn't it, which, which we're sort of touching on, which is it, it's kind of like you said, it's not necessarily what they want, it's what they need. Yeah. And I guess even what, we think we want in life it is it's probably not what we really really want actually we we think as you say we're conditioned by the people around us right what what did it feel like when you made that first sale because up until then i'm getting the impression that you were told you were no good at school yeah you didn't fit in yeah your mum told you you're a bit different from the 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 rest yeah at the kids yeah in a nice way in a nice way right (laughs) and you're 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 bullied you're leaving school you're not turning up for your exams all this kind of stuff so what does it feel like in your early 20s to actually complete a sale on a house i don't know maybe maybe i felt felt like i i felt like i'd found where i was meant to be I think look I think looking back at it now I'd I'd found this I'd I'd found what I thought was my happy place at that point in time. I I really I think I had um that feeling there's there's two feelings that you get from that there's one that you've managed to get your vendor who is who you're working for the money that they want for their house yeah. which can do a multiple a multitude of different things in terms of either releasing money that they want um or it can enable them to move up to something bigger so there's there's a there's a whole thing from that um and then also um you're also getting somebody to buy something that they want so for me, in some respects, moving because I'd worked in the bike shop for such a long period of time as well of selling bikes. Again, that was about taking out three or four products within the bike shop. Somebody says, "Right, I've got between four hundred and eight hundred pounds to spend on a bike, um, or four and six hundred pounds to spend on a bike." And I'm thinking, I'm going to buy either a Kona, a Specialized, or a Marin, which were the the kind of the the, the brands at that point um, within the store. And you pick the three out and you compare the three and you say, well, that one, let's go for a ride on them, see how you feel. That's got this componentry, that's got that. And for many ways for me, selling houses became no different. They were just bigger numbers. Mm. Again, you're finding somebody saying, I want to spend between 60 and 70,000 pounds on a house and I want to be within this area and I need three bedrooms. So you turn around and you say, well, there's, there you go. There's those of what I've got. This one's here. That one's there. The benefits of this one to you are X, the benefits of that yeah. one. And you're marrying them up. So for me, it was never it was never necessarily about how much money that I could turn over. It was it was about the service and the joy that I get from people achieving the things and getting the things that they want. So and, that that that's so powerful. And whilst we're sitting here talking about it now, that's still what I'm doing when I go into a big company and do a speaking session and then those people then go and sign up for a triathlon or for a, for a running event or for a cycling event and they go and achieve something that they didn't think that they could achieve. That's why I do what I do. There's so many things about that, which come up for me. One of them is that in the midst of, you know, 
everything that was going on back then. So, you know, you're struggling a little bit, you know, kind of, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. You know, everyone's told me I'm worthless sort of thing. And you end up at an estate agent, you make this sale, but you actually sell them a cheaper house. Yeah. And I have this uh, model of happiness, which has got three components. I call it core happiness. One of them, one of the legs of that core happiness stool is what I call alignment. So, when the person who you really are and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. And it strikes me that even though back then you would probably say you, well, I've heard you say that you were materialistic. Even within that, there was little glimmers, weren't there, of who you actually are, which is I'm not taking the bigger sale, bigger commission, bigger everything. Actually, I'm going to do the right thing for these people. That's powerful to hear that. Yeah, and I openly admit now... Um, that I feel that I lied to my I lied to myself about who I was for so many years because of in that industry and in that way of life because I was behaving the way that I thought I needed to behave to fit in with that industry and to fit in with society. I have I can count on two hands the amount of people that I still have communications with from the old town that I used to live in and from the industry that I was involved in that because i'm not that person i'm now being able to i'm i've now been able to be the person that i really am yeah and cancer allowed me to change that because when i was laying in hospital so many people didn't come and see me so many people that i thought were friends and that i thought were part of my life didn't come to see me they didn't come to see how i was and I realized at that point that everything that had gone on, I didn't realize at that point, I became I became to realize it, uh, over a period of time. I think anybody that sits here and says that, or anybody that sits there and says that they had this flash moment where everything changed, it's like, you, you didn't. It manifested over a period of time. I don't, I, I think there's very, very few people in the world that have the bolt of lightning. Yeah. You I know, I, I, I can sit there and I say in speaking engagements now that if I told you that I sat in a, in a hospital bed and came up with this grand master plan that within 14 years I was going to raise all this money and be standing on the start line of the world's toughest bike race and doing a podcast with you, complete lies. Because it was, it was one step at a time. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to all of that because I was literally getting sort of tingles in me this morning at the thought of you coming to the studio as I was watching the videos and I was thinking, man, I'm lucky I get to speak to to people like James about their life because there is no doubt in my mind that people who've gone to the limits of life have gone to extreme adversity often learn such powerful lessons about what is life about what's truly important that i think for many of us we can we can learn so much mm. from stories like yours if if we're prepared to listen um but before we get to the diagnosis you mentioned that comments on youtube from someone who you're at school with Mm-hmm. There's a there's a Red Bull video online. It's a beautiful sort of 14, 15 minute kind yeah. of motivational kind of summary of your life. It, it's really, you know, fun yeah. to watch. And actually, you don't know this, but the reason I invited you onto the podcast was because of how you replied to that comment. Right. Because when you approached me and I, I checked you out and I thought, this is an interesting story. And I was just looking at the comments on that video and I saw what your old 
school colleague had said, um, couldn't find it this morning, actually, but as you said, it was something like, well, I don't recall that, you know, that's not quite true in terms of what happened. And it was so beautiful to me, the way you answer that. I thought this is a guy with a high degree of emotional intelligence to be able to, in a YouTube comment spot, beautifully articulate an answer, which was just showcasing that actually everything we see in someone else, we don't know what's going on behind that. Even when someone is apparently bullying, what's going on on the other side of that bullying? How does that person feel about themselves? So yeah, I don't think I shared that with you, did I? No, you didn't. No, no, you didn't. Um, No, I didn't know that at all. No, I didn't. Um, And what what does it make you think of when when you hear that? um, I'm kind of, I feel slightly emotional. I think that, um, that you'd, that that was one of, not that that was one of the reasons, but also that you felt that way about the response because you never, you don't, you don't write the response like I did to get a reaction from somebody else. I wrote that response because Mm. that was, that was my response. And I responded to so many of the messages on that video because I felt that I needed to take the time to do that because let's be under no illusion. I'm where I am now in terms of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it because of the support that I've had from so many people. And that comes from people writing comments on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever that is. We had Facebook and Twitter at the time when we first started this, but you know, um, and, and that's because of, their input i class them as being part of one step at a time the road to ram and and they are as instrumental in me getting to where i am today as one of my financial partners or one of the product Mm. partners that we have on board let's just uh, explain what ram is because a lot of people won't know that term Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to the mental wellness app, Calm, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, just for a moment, think back to the start of this year. Was meditating more regularly one of your intentions? How's it going? Are you on track or do you think you need a little boost? Well, wherever you are with your meditation practice, I think Calm can really help. With Calm, you can jumpstart or continue your meditation practice and find peace of mind today. Calm can help you reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds, Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash live more. Go to calm.com forward slash live more for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash live more. Vivo Barefoot are also bringing you today's show. Now I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for around 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my life, my family's life, many of my friends, 
And the truth is a lot of my patients as well. You see, I've seen so many benefits when people transition to minimal issues like Vivos. You can see improvements in things like back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis, as well as a generalized increased enjoyment of movements because you feel much more connected to the ground whilst you're walking. Now, scientific research has shown that just a few months of wearing Vivos for your daily activity, this is not about running in them, you can run in them, but if you're just moving over to them, I'd recommend that you start off by just walking and living your everyday life in them. Just a few months of doing this increases your foot strength by almost 60%. They are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I'll get for my children. And if you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. If you go to vivobarefoot.com, forward slash live more. They are giving 20% off to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions do apply to get your 20% off codes. All you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Yeah, so RAM um, is, it stands for Race Across America. So Race Across America is known as the world's toughest bike race. It starts in Oceanside, California, and it finishes in Maryland, Annapolis. Um, it's 3,100 miles. It's about 3,096, 92, just depends on certain road directions at the time. So we say 3,100 miles, um, and we'll be aiming to achieve that between eight and a half and nine days. So I'll be riding for um, in the region of 22 hours a day, and sleeping for no more than two hours a day. For eight to nine days. For eight to nine days. Okay. That's the plan. And I would like very much to be the first British rider to win Race Across America. No Brits ever won it before. And the caveat that I put with that all the time is that that's not about, that's not me being cocky saying that I am going to win race across America. That's not me being arrogant saying that I'm better than any of the other riders there. That's about the mindset that I'm putting into myself and that I'm putting into my crew. And I'm hoping that all of my supporters and followers will also pick up on and that my sponsors will pick up on because I believe that if I believe it, my crew believes it, my sponsors believe it, then we're all working towards that common goal of winning Race Across America. Yeah. And if we're all pushing in that same direction, I'm going to sleep Race Across America, I'm going to eat Race Across America, I'm going to train Race Across America. And if we get there and we don't win Race Across America, somebody there was better than me. Yeah. But why shouldn't I have that mindset that I can be the best at what I want to do? Why shouldn't I believe that I can achieve? Yeah. Believe to achieve. There it is. Why, why shouldn't I believe that I can achieve the things that I put my mind to, which takes me back to the walking comment? Yeah. We were born to achieve great things. We've already achieved great things. There's no reason why we can't continue to achieve great things. And actually, if you want to be the MD of your business or you want to be the best at what you do, tell those people around you that that's what you want to do. But we don't tell those people around us for the fear of what they might think about what we want to do. So, for example, and a, 
a, an analogy that I use sometimes is the guy that's sitting in the office that started 12 months ago that wants to become MD of the company over a long period of time. But there's three people in the office who have been there for six or seven years. And he doesn't want to tell anybody that he wants to become MD because he doesn't want to upset the three other people that have been there six or seven years because they're more in line for the job than he is. The truth of it is those three people don't want to be MD. And he tells them that he wants to be MD and they go, do you know what? You'd make a really good MD in the future. I'll help you. You can learn from me. I'll support you. But we don't tell them because we're afraid of what they're going to think. Yeah. I just want to respond to something you just said, which reminded me of my own life when I publicly stated a few years ago that my mission is to help improve the lives of 100 million people over the course of my career. Mm. And I was really nervous before I said it. For months, I thought, mm, yeah, people are going to think I'm cocky. Um, you know, is that an arrogant thing to say? I was really trying to understand where does this come from? All that kind of stuff. And the truth is, I thought, well, it, it's not cocky. I don't feel it. You know, I, I, I genuinely, I've seen the power of the media through being on telly or when you can simplify complex messaging and inspire people. I've seen the impact it can have very quickly. But what you said there, it just reminded me of the fear I had, because what will people think? And mm. it, it's, it's really interesting now that actually, I think, in, if anything, I don't think I've ever had a negative comment about it, That I and I see a lot of comments. Yeah, yeah. It's more been inspiring for people. Uh, it's it, In many ways, it's energized people. And, you know, someone asked me the other day, how are you going to um, measure if you've, if you've achieved it? And I've come to the conclusion... And, the realization, I should say, over the past few months, past few years, that actually, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like for me, it actually doesn't matter. It's just, as you say, it's like putting the intention out there that this is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. And if I don't and I make it 92 million, yeah. right? Well, that's, that's still pretty good. And if it's only one person yeah. who's changed their life on the back of something that they may have heard on a podcast or read in one of my books, it's like, well, that's still impact. That's still yeah. change. And so it started off being something I was afraid of. It's now turned into something actually that's really quite liberating for me because I actually, for me, it's not about measuring that number. It, it helps me make decisions in my life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's that relationship to it, which I think is is really important. But th that's that's also so. Um, as we were, we were just saying bef before we started, was that one of the things that I'm trying to also talk about at the moment is winning race across America is my goal. That's what I want to win race across America. I've been I've I've been very open about that, um, but I don't want that to be the defying point of my journey because if you take if you take winning race across america out of the equation and even if you take cancer out of the equation and you look at what i've done since or what we've done i i use the terminology we because there's a as i've said before it's a whole team it's those people yeah. that are i it gets commented quite a lot that i don't talk about me i say that i just ride the bike but the point here is that you take cancer out of the equation and you take the the winning race across america that bit in the middle of having started cycling to raising a hundred thousand pounds to being hit by a truck to then raising more money to now having raised over three million and breaking a world record that in itself 
is something and the, you know and then looking at that and saying well actually you've got your trustee of a charity down in south africa helping kids um in deprived areas with education and sport and you're looking to bring that program to the uk and work with the british army cadets around that and all of this other stuff gets diluted by the fact that you had cancer and you're going to win race across america yeah because that stuff's still there like yeah. whether you win or not <laughs> all that other stuff that real stuff that change you stroke you and your team you and your tribe have created it still exists whether you do that or not yeah. which is but so many people would reflect on the you didn't win race cross or you came second but i got to race cross less people more people have summited everest this year than have ever completed race across america Th this this is massive right because and this is where i think your cancer diagnosis really comes in for me which is because I was wondering before you came, I thought, I've seen you publicly say in your TED talk, you said, I'm going to win a race across America, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, man, to go and say that publicly, world's toughest cycling race. I was interested, what is his relationship to winning? What happens if he doesn't win? I think it's become more peaceful over the years. I think um, I've become, since 2016, I've, I've, I think 20, 2016 was, was, probably quite a big turning point and i think it's progressively got not I'm not saying that 2016 was the end of being stressed and aggressive or towards the challenges and the things that i was doing i think it was where i started to find more peace in certain things and race across america winning race across america um will be a defining moment in what i've achieved on the bike but it's not a defining moment of who i am that's what I mean about Race Across America and cancer. It's, and, and that's part of my, I suppose in some respects, for want of better wording, that's a slight problem with in my head of where I'm at at the moment that I don't want cancer to be a defining factor of, of who I am. So in, um, in February, I posted a picture of me in hospital on the 24th of February. And I put a post on LinkedIn and Instagram and everywhere else and said, this is the last time that I will publicly share this anniversary that was the day that I was rushed into emergency surgery. That was the day that I met Phil Barragranath. I don't remember meeting him because I was out of it at That's the time. That's your surgeon. That's my surgeon. So you posted earlier this year yeah. on the anniversary of what, the very first time- No, of the emergency operation. I was diagnosed in the November and on the 24th of February, I was rushed into emergency Got surgery. It. So, so that was how many years ago at that time? Uh, that would have been 2009. Okay, so what we 2026, so about 13 years ago yeah. or so. So you posted a photo saying, this is the last time you'll see something like this. Online. Well, this will be the last time I publicly, I'm not saying I won't use the photo again, but this is the last time that I will publicly remember this anniversary. Why? Because it's not about that. My story isn't, my life isn't about that one defying day of the 24th of February where doctors rushed me into emergency surgery to save my life. It's not about that. That's a key point in my life. That's one day in my life where Phil Barragranath went above and beyond. I love the guy implicitly. I speak to him on the 24th of February every year. No matter where I am, no matter where he is, we have a phone call, whether that's a five-minute phone call or a 20-minute phone call. But that guy, when he openly admitted that he didn't think there was any way that I was going to make it, but he had to do what he could do. But me sharing that photo on that particular day, that's just an anniversary. And, and I've got a lot of anniversaries throughout, throughout the year now. Yeah. And they come and they go and I don't even remember them. They come and they go and I go, 
something clicks sometimes where I don't feel great yeah. on a certain day. And then a couple of days later I go, I know why I didn't feel very good yesterday. And Louise will be like, why? And I go, it was 15th of April, which was the day I walked out of hospital. Mm-hmm. Or it was the um, the 11th of November, which was the day that I was admitted to hospital first time round. That that publicly announcing that photo gets a reaction every every year, and it's not about the reaction that you get yeah. from that photo or from that anniversary. It's about actually that was the beginning. But what about the rest of this that's gone yeah. on? Man, I'm getting shivers because um, I, I really am. I can, I can honestly, I can feel it everywhere. Um, you're changing the story. You're changing the narrative constantly. You're not getting stuck as powerful as that story is, to, to me at least, mm. on the outside, having never met you before, having what, we just had a few DMs on Instagram, that is it until today. Yeah. Like I just see a real fluidity there in how you how you approach life. You know, that story helped you move beyond it and maybe gave you some drive or motivation. You get to another point, but then... You've got that fluidity of thought to be that that I'm not going to stick to that story for the rest of my life. I'm still not going to be, you know, 90 years old and still being defined by that. No, no, that story, maybe it worked for a few years and now time to shed it and like yeah. move on. It's like that the only constant in life has changed, right? And it's and, and I think many people, and I put myself in this in the past for sure, you cling to identities, you cling to stories because you think that's who you are. It makes everything about you. Yeah. Does that ring true to you? I, I think it does ring true, but I think there's um, there's other there's other factors in that as well that I don't want my kids. Freddie, in some respects, Freddie has been too submersed in the fact that daddy's had cancer twice and he shouldn't be here because we was told we'd never be able to have children. He's openly said that to people. I remember Louise saying to me once that Freddie introduced himself as Freddie. My dad's had cancer twice and I should never have been here. You know, you kind of go, that's that's not right. Yeah. You know, that's not right. You're here and that's one of the that's one of the best things that that ever happened to me. And that you need to come away from that. I don't as I've already said throughout this, I don't want people to being my point of view, and this may differ, but my point of view of being um a cancer survivor is that you you don't want to always go on about cancer, but you like the you want people to remember because what you've been through is going to have an impact on the rest of your life in some way, shape, or form. There will always be that worry of I don't feel very good today. I remember that pain. Is it? And that goes on for a certain period of time. There's a big lost feeling when you come out of cancer treatment. I did a lot of work with Macmillan originally about it, um, but it does need to change. I we've moved over to Portugal. Um, there's things that there's other things that I want to achieve in my life with the coffee shop that we've got with running bike tours with doing stuff with Freddie with doing stuff with Lila to doing stuff with Louise and race across America and some of the other stuff has consumed quite a lot I mean Louise and I joke about it that my bike came on our honeymoon because the bike for me is so much more than the big races and ticking boxes what is it it's my medication it's my freedom. It's my putting my head in a certain place. I could go out for a half an hour bike ride in the morning on a bad day and feel great for the rest of the day. It's my happy place. We've all got a happy place. We just have to find what that happy place is. Cycling was my recovery. It was, 
I openly admit that I got to where I am now by accident. I didn't plan, already said it. I didn't plan to be standing on the start line of Race Across America. When I sat in my lounge back in 2009 with a massive hangover from going back to normal, as we call it, after treatment and thinking, this isn't right. This this really isn't right. I can't I can't go back. I don't want to go back to where I was before because that's not doing that's doing a, a disservice to Phil Barragranath, to Charlotte West, who was the nurse that looked after me on the on the high wow. dependency ward, to Phil Barragranath giving up his family holiday to make sure he was still in the hospital to be able to make sure I still got the care that I needed. To Charlotte West working double shifts to be there. To me, going back to normal was like no, I don't. I can't do. So what do I do? I'm ready to go back to work, but I don't want to go back to work. But I want to go back to work, but I can't go back to work because I'm not really ready to go back to work. Yeah. That whole, the best way of describing it is you've got the flu or a cold and three days afterwards you feel great and then you get up and walk to the end of the house and you go, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not better yet. And that was the same situation I was going through there. So I picked a bike up and I rode five miles around the local reservoir and it destroyed me. Three months later, I was riding from there to my mum's house, which was 10 miles away. And I'm saying, I need to do something to give back to those people. Yeah. And I'm looking for something. And I came up with this idea of, along with somebody else, this idea of cycling across America and raising £100,000. As a doctor, one of the things there that jumps out at me is in 2009, you wake up with a stinking hangover. And, you know, a few months prior to that, maybe a year prior to that, you know, the surgeon operating on you didn't think you were going to make it through the operation. I think yeah. I've read you had a, we're given a 5% chance of survival. Yeah. Afterwards you go and get a smash and you, you, you have this hangover and you suddenly realize, wait, this is, this is not right. How come you got that realization, right? In that moment, because many people, many patients I've seen, I've in, in people in the family who get the diagnosis, they've had the heart attack, right? Or people get the type 2 diabetes diagnosis and they hear what the doctor says and what the nurse is going to tell them about them losing their leg or stuff, but they still then go and consume all their, you know, high sugar, high calorie foods, don't get up and move, all those kind of things. So I'm fascinated. Why did you get that realisation and why do many people not get that realization? Is it because you were literally at the end? Yeah, I mean, I the, there's there's been articles where I've I've talked about the fact I laid in hospital and I cried and I cried with my mum and I cried with my best mate Ross, and I just said I just I just want to die. I don't. I can't. I'm done. This just let me go. And this was this was as I was actually getting better, but I. I couldn't sit up in bed. I couldn't even lift my own head off the pillow. So I think there the potentially is an element that I had been so far in that other direction. Um, I think there's also an element that going out and getting smashed all of a sudden was surrounded by all of these people again who were so pleased I was better and so pleased I was out but didn't come to see me whilst I was in hospital. Mm. So you begin to realise that there's um, there's not that genuine... It's not as... it's. It's not as genuine. And I think I'd always, I think I'd also realized, yeah, I think I'd also realized that um, one of the things I did whilst I was in hospital, and I've still got it somewhere at home, is I had a diary and I wrote certain things that I wanted to do in it when I got better. Riding a bike wasn't one of them, but I wrote a list of certain things that I wanted to do when I got better. Um, 
so I think there was a I think there was an accumulation of a number of different things. I think also I was I was actually I was ill for a long period of time. I was I was in hospital. Yes, I I did certain days at home and short periods of time at home, but essentially I was in hospital from the beginning of November to the end of April. And some of that was and that was on so many different different wards and different places and in intensive care to high dependency to physio unit to, to all these different places. So I think there was I think there was a number of factors yeah. in number of factors at play in that. And I think that in some respects, if you've and I'm I'm speaking from my point of view of how I'm thinking now, if you've got somebody who potentially has a heart attack and puts the stent in and that's done relatively quickly yeah they don't have the time to actually reflect on the fact that they're kind of like well that was it was yeah i had a stent in it was done within a couple of weeks and i'm all right now they don't have the time to reflect on the fact that the mortgage company's chasing you because you're about to lose everything they don't yeah. you've got people coming around to you and saying um james do you do you have a will at 28 years old yeah you don't there isn't that there. They're all things that you might not think about, but they're still in your subconscious. Yeah. They're still there. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. I mean, of course there's there's a whole host of different factors and um I, I and just to be really clear, I'm not saying that with judgment on anyone. No, like not at I, all. I totally get change is hard for many people yeah. and I, it's just fascinating to me. It just you know, just lit up in my ears when you said that. I said, why? What you know, why? What went and what happened there? I do think most people I do think most people, um, in my experience, from what I've seen, what you what you sometimes find, mostly from people that I've spoken to, if they go through something that I did, they they either go back to to normal and then explode, let's call it, yeah. at a later date, or they explode straight away. Yeah, there is there is that okay, I'm going to bury my head, carry on as normal. All of a sudden, I'm starting to get the heart flutters again and I don't feel very good. Okay, something's got to change. Yeah. But and there is the, also there is the, I'm okay now, I'm going to rebel against this illness and I'm going to prove it that I'm okay and and everything. So I do think that most people, a lot of people will go through quite a significant change at some point, but it's where that is. And then it's like me not being ready to get the help that I needed. I was angry. And this is going back to your earlier question. I after I had cancer, I was angry. I was angry with cancer. I was angry with with everything. So I didn't necessarily go about the events and the the, the things that that I could have done in the way in a in a structured way in terms of fundraising and the speaking engagements and everything else. It manifested itself in a different manner. But I was angry with cancer. I hated it. But. 2016 was the change in that when I started to get the help that I should have got. And I surrounded myself with the team that I've got now who they're yeah. my boys. I love them. Well, well, let's go back to the, your 20s, right? You're in this estate agent. You're, you're making sales. Um, you think you're sort of getting somewhere with your life. You're making a bit of money. Uh, I believe you had a nice car back then, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, from I've heard you say you were pretty materialistic back then, driven yeah. by money. Then you have this chronic backache, yeah. right? Let's pick up from there. Mm -hmm. um, tell us what happened um, in, in whatever way you. Yeah, you so I think you probably. Um, so the 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 market had crashed in two thousand and seven, 
Um, and I, at that point, owned my own business, which was called Round the Houses. We were working mainly with developers. Um, we got to the point all of a sudden of where we sold everything that was built. And we had a lot of property that we were selling off plan. And um, we decided that, or I decided that actually, because we were hemorrhaging money week on week, month on month, because nobody was actually buying anything, nothing was built, we didn't know what was going to happen. So we closed the business down. And I actually went back into plastering, which is what I'd learned to do when I was 14. Yeah. Some guys I knew who owned a building company were like, we can't find a plaster anywhere. And I was like, I'll do it. So I went back into plastering. I went and bought some kit and got back into it and then got offered more work and more work and more yeah. work. So I was back on the tools, so to speak. Um, I had a couple of guys working for me. I bought a, bought a new van and we were getting work not coming at us from all directions, but we were we were a couple of weeks busy. And then I started to get this back pain and it would be worse at night than it was during the day. And I kind of didn't, I didn't really think too much of it initially because I thought it was just because I'd gone from sitting behind a desk every day to being quite, not laxy-daisy. I mean, I was always in the gym. I was, you know, I was, I was, I was fit, but going from being fit to being plaster fit is another level you're doing basically plastering is another version of step aerobics on a daily basis wow. all day that's the best way i can you know you a bag of plaster is 25 kilos and you're probably going to get through between four and six bags a day at least um and you're up and down on platforms you're up and down on steps and ladders and you're 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 running around it's quite fast paced so i just assumed that I was standing funny. I'd been doing some ceilings and was yeah. standing a bit on the skew whiff. Um, and it slowly got worse. And it got to the point of where um, I would probably have a can of Red Bull and a couple of painkillers in the morning. And then I'd have a couple more painkillers. And then in the evenings, it would be really bad. I'd be um, fetal position in bed at night, trying to stretch it out to then speaking to my chiropractor who was a friend of mine and saying to him how I felt. And he said, well, look, come and come and see me. And I went to see him and he, he said to me, look, I need to see you for the next four weeks. Obviously there's little bits that we're cutting out of here, but he said, you need to come and see me for the next four weeks. Now you've been a nightmare with your appointments, James. And I'm like, well, when I'm plastering, if the wall's not dry, the wall's not dry. <laughs> so yeah. like if I've got a three o'clock appointment and that's still wet, I can't get here. So anyway, we, he said, look, I'll do, You've been in nightmare appointments. You pay for this appointment. I'll pay for the next one. You pay for the next appointment and I'll pay for the next one. But if you miss one appointment, don't come back. Don't want to see you again. I was like, okay, all right, fair enough. Jumped on the couch, saw him and he was like, mate, you're in the best shape I've ever seen you in. This, look, go away, come back next week. Come back next week. How you feeling? Worse, like really bad. He was like, okay, I want you to go and see your doctor now like now he's like when he's going to see the doctor now tell him to check your pancreas your digestive tract and something else something's not right you're in the best shape i've ever seen you in something's not right went to the doctor sat down with the doctor and said my chiropractor suggested i come to see you um he suggested that we look at my pancreas my digestive tract and i can't i can never remember the third and the doctor looked at me and went there's nothing wrong with you you're fitting well do you think that's because it was a chiropractor saying it yeah. And yeah. he said, you, you're fitting well. There's nothing wrong with you. You're fitting well. Take some painkillers. You've changed jobs. It's muscle pain. Checked you over. You're okay. Yeah. Go back to the chiropractors the next week. And he says, right, I want you to go back to your doctors tomorrow. I'm like, okay. He says, I'm going to write to your doctor and I'm going to send it recorded delivery. And 
I want you to ring into here tomorrow and we'll confirm that it's been signed for and that you've got it. And then we want you to ring up and go back in again. I said, okay, fine. Next day, get the ring him. Yes, it's been signed for. Ring the doctors. Can I make an appointment to see him? Yes, you can. Go and see the doctor and say, Stefan Stefan Vossen, my chiropractor, has asked me to come back. He's written to you. I've not had a letter. I said, well, it's been sent, recorded delivery. He's got it. Well, I've not had anything. And I said, look, I'm still in a lot of pain, worse than I was last week when I came. Okay, well, if the painkillers that I gave you aren't working, then we should give you something that's stronger. And I'm looking, I'm looking at this stronger painkiller, and I can't remember what they what they were, but they were, um, they were like kind of tamazepam esque. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not going down that route. So I I went, took my prescription, and went. And then a week or so later, um, I was in the shower and I found a lump next to one of the generals, as I say in a school spe- school talk, which gets every boy in the room absolutely laughing his head off. <laughs> and um, I went back to the doctors, but I went to see a different doctor. Um, and, and he was like, look, let's get you down to the hospital for some bloods. Um, and then we'll refer you to a specialist over in Coventry and we'll see what we can do. It's like, okay, fine. That afternoon, I got a phone call from his secretary to say, we want to book an appointment with you in Coventry. I said, okay. Uh, so no, in, in, in rugby, um, the appointment was going to be in rugby. Um, and I said, fine, perfect. When will it be? And she said, it'll be eight weeks time. I said, eight weeks can we not well he's got another appointment in rugby in four weeks time but he's fully booked so it'll have to be in eight weeks when his next appointment's on I said well can I not just go and see him in Coventry <laughs> it's like 20 minutes up the road there's no diff like there's no for me to take time out to go to rugby hospital or to drive one junction down the motorway is irrelevant so can I go and, well no because you've been referred to rugby so I can't go and see him in Coventry because no, you need to go back to the doctor and get them to refer you to Coventry. So anyway, I told my mum about this. I know this man, honestly. What have you made? So I told my mum about it. Um, excuse the terminology, but but batshit crazy doesn't come close to to where my mum went when I told her this. <laughs> so she then gets on the phone and explains to this this secretary of what pain I'm in. To which her response is, "If he's that bad, why don't you take him to A and E?" And I think two days after that or three days after that, I rang mum at about eight o'clock and I felt far, far worse at that point than I had any other night. So you're in excruciating pain? Yeah, to the point of rolling up in a ball on the sofa because that was the only way I felt comfortable. And I imagine your tolerance to pain is possibly quite high. Stefan, who was was my chiropractor at the time, and um, Aurelie, who was my massage therapist moving post-cancer, I've always said the problem is, is that I don't feel pain. Yeah. So anyway, this this secretary turns around to, to my mum and says, well, if he's that bad, why don't you take him to A&E? So my, the two days later, I ring mum and I'm like, this is a lot worse sooner than ever before. And she's like, do you want to go to A&E? I said, no, let's, let me just take some paracetamol and see how I feel in half an hour. I rang her back in 20 minutes and said, come and get me. I want to go to A&E. So she picked me up um, and drove me over to Coventry and Warwick Hospital. And I remember walking in the door to A&E and it was rammed. It was absolutely heaving. But there was one chair in the corner of the room and mum said, you go and sit down. And I walked over to this chair and sat down. Now, I, I, I still don't remember whether there was a moment of me sitting down and falling asleep or whatever, but it felt like that the moment that I sat down and looked up, there was a nurse there with a wheelchair to take me through to triage. Whether that was mum turning around and saying, I've got James Gold in here and they'd gone on to my name, my file, whatever it was. And there was a 
a big flashing light saying we've got his blood he's not good or whatever that was um they took me through to triage they put me um they gave me some painkillers which were amazing and that was the best night's sleep i think i'd probably had in about four months the next morning they moved me um onto um onto a ward i was just trying to remember the number of the ward but they moved me on i think it was ward 18 um that they moved me onto and they then put me instantly on um oromorph and a selection of painkillers to be able to manage the pain it was about pain management to start with whilst we worked out what was going on they then turned around and said we're going to do an ultrasound tomorrow morning and if it's testicular cancer, then we'll have you in for an operation tomorrow afternoon um, and we'll work out where we go from there. I went down the next morning for um, for the ultrasound. So this was the 13th of November. Mm-hmm. I went down for the ultrasound um, and came back up. About an hour or so later, they came over and said, we think you should ring your mum and get her to come in. You're going to see the doctor this afternoon. So we came in, mum came in and I remember... I don't remember his name, but this guy was huge. Um, he was a German doctor and he took me and mum up the up the ward, over the corridor and into his office. And he said, it's not testicular cancer, but I found an abnormal mass wedged between your spine, kidney and bowel. And I think it's cancer. Um, and they then took us from that room across the corridor into another room where there was Andy Stockdale, who was um, who was sat there, who was my oncologist. There was his trainee and there were two people from Macmillan. And we sat down and they said, this is, we found this abnormal mass, which is 11 and a half centimetres. And I got up and walked off. And mum came back to my bed and she said, you need to listen to them. You need to listen to what they're saying. I'm like, mum, they're going to do what they do. I, I can't, I've got no, I've got no input on what they need to do being done. It's up to them. And whether that was just, whether that was the 300 milligrams of morphine plus Oromorph mm. that I was on at that point in time, there's a picture somewhere of, of actually the point we got to. And there's a picture which my spade like hands are literally full of tablets that I was on on a daily basis. Um, yeah. And um, Andy always has said that I was a bit resistant, but we then did a um, keyhole um, biopsy and they turned around and said it's a, a primary repetineal seminoma and it's wedged between your spine kidney and bowel but because of where it's wedged we're not able to do surgery on it it's too risky so we want to go down the route of doing some chemotherapy and it's going to be pretty aggressive chemotherapy so then we can see what's going on and then work out a plan of action after that i went home um for probably about two weeks and then went back into hospital um, where I then started my first lot of chemo. And the nurses actually admitted to my mum, I'm not sure if it was on the first lot or the second lot, but the first lot kicked me down the ballpark. I, I shaved my head. I was like, cancer's not taking my hair. I'm doing this before it can. And um, I started my first lot of chemo and things weren't too bad, but it then over the course of the week. So the idea was that I'd have a full week of chemotherapy. I'd then have three weeks off and then I'd have a full week of chemo, another three weeks off, maybe a booster each week in between, but then I'd have another three weeks off and then the final lot of chemo. Um, and I did the first lot. I then went neutropenic and was put into um, isolation over Christmas and wasn't allowed to see any family or, or anybody. Um 
So, you know, neutrophils being the kind of important white blood cell that helps to fight infections. Yeah. Neutropenia. I'd got you don't mouth ulcers and thrush all down my throat yeah. and all through the back of my mouth. So I was struggling to even eat anything, at which point they then um, decided that they wanted to put a feed tube direct into my bowel to be able to, to feed me because it was the only way that I was going to sustain any sort of weight. I hated the idea of having that in. Um, but actually over time, they then refused to give me my, um, third and final lot of chemo because there was swelling on my ankles. So I think I had something like about four blood transfusions over the period of time, uh, four, well, four, four big lots of blood over the period of time from Christmas to towards the end of January. And then what actually happened was the feed tube that they'd put direct in my bowel actually went through the back of my bowel. So what was happening was all the food that was being pumped into me was actually just sitting in my cavity. Mm. All the food that I was eating was sitting in my cavity. So I'd blown up. I just enlarged, but they couldn't work out why. Um, They did various... And you're not getting nutrition at the same time, I guess. Yeah, because it's it's just not going anywhere. It's all the food I'm eating is just rotting in my cavity rather than actually going through my system. Um, I remember... um, going to burger going i remember going seeing the nutritionist with my mum and i remember her telling me that i just needed to keep consuming as many calories as i could so i was big enough and strong enough and i'm like well i'm 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 huge anyway and she was saying no you need to eat so i had a burger king on the way home we ordered a pizza that night next thing i remember is waking up in intensive care but i had no idea where i was i had no idea how i got there all i could see was as far as my eyes would move and I knew that there was somebody stood at the end of my bed. I couldn't talk. I woke up in intensive care with 35 stitches in my stomach. They'd brought my bowel out onto the surface. I'd got two tubes in my right-hand side. I'd got two tubes in my left-hand side and one in my back. I'd got a central line in my chest. I'd got two cannulas in each arm. I'd got a tracheotomy in my throat. Um, I'd got a tube up my nose as well. Um, And then I'd got a urethra as well. And I couldn't move. Like a catheter in as well. Yeah. And I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how I'd got, I thought I'd had a car crash. I had no memory of anything that had gone on before. I had no memory of having, of having cancer. Were you scared? Yeah. Yeah. But I was confused. I didn't know every, there was an element of looking back at it now and being able to, as I've said a a number of times, there was every, when I woke up, everybody looked fuzzy, you know, like Miss Piggy it's got the fuzzy look to her and that's what everybody looked like. Their skin looked as if it was fuzzy. It looked like there were stars falling from the ceiling when I first woke up and I didn't know, I didn't know where I was. I thought the guy over the other side had got loads of trophies next to his bed, but I wasn't sleeping. So they moved me out of intensive care as quick as they could um, and put me then onto um, uh, not an intensive care ward, but a high dependency ward. So there was one nurse per two beds rather than just one per bed. That was where I met Charlotte West's. That was where, when I when I came out of, when I was brought, I was in a coma for two weeks um, in intensive care. And when they brought me out of that, out of the, because it was an induced coma. When I came out of that, that was when I met Phil. But it wasn't the first time I'd met him. And that was the beginning of where our relation, he didn't want me to come off intensive care yet. But he also appreciated that there was no routine in my life at that point. Sounds <laughs> sounds weird to say, but um, the the obviously, 
you're, you're more than aware, but intensive care is one person looking after you 24 hours a day. There's no daylight. Very rarely is there any any source of external daylight. There's no food cart. There's no paper man coming around at the same time yeah. every day. And um, by moving me out of there and moving me onto the high dependency ward, that was the second best night's sleep I'd ever had because the first one was when I went into hospital and got put on painkillers. Um, and then then I started to develop the relationship with um, night times again, curtains opening, lights coming on. There was some routine, so I knew when I was going to sleep. Certain things on telly became the routine for me. Um, Jeremy Kyle was a big thing because it was just easy to watch and it just got rid of time. Homes Under the Hammer was a second thing. It mm-hmm. just got rid of time. And I focused on... I focused myself on on small goals. I couldn't even lift my own head off the pillow. I couldn't. I could barely wiggle my fingers. I couldn't move my legs or my toes. I could barely lift my head off the pillow. There's a couple of pictures around of both that intensive care and that yeah. period of time. And um, but I but I could, as I say, I could wiggle my fingers. But I concentrated my efforts on the goal, the small goals, which became things like tomorrow we're going to take your stitches out. Um, okay, or well, staples. <laughs> They're horrid. They really are horrid. But we're going to take your staples out. Okay, well, let's focus on the staples coming out. Again, this goes back to that point of what I was saying earlier of, I would love to sit here and say there was this grand master plan of staples and tubes and da-da-da, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. There wasn't. It became my main objective at that point in time was being able to go to the toilet on my own. That was my biggest goal. 28 years old, I want to go to the toilet on my own. That's it. It's there and I can't even get to it. I can't physically get myself to the edge of this bed, let alone stand up and walk across the room and go to the toilet on my own. And that's the one thing I want to be able to do. And that's why you say being able to walk is the most incredible thing that we've all done at some point in our life. Yeah. I couldn't lift my own head off the pillow. I couldn't wiggle my fingers. But when I learned to wiggle my fingers, I was able to move the button on the bed that would then sit me up straight. And then what I'd do is I'd let the bed go down and see how long I could sit up, sit up for. And then I'd fall backward, I'm chuckling, but I'd crash backwards. And the nurses would all run in and I'd go, are you okay? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm fine. And they're like, you're doing the bed thing again. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, stop it. Because I was getting told off yeah. for, for doing this. Well, so, what, what, how were you feeling at the time? Were you, you know... I was just trying to get a sense of you. You mentioned there was this anger, anger at cancer, right? Were you feeling angry at that time? I don't, or? Think, I don't think I was angry at that time. I, I hadn't had a chance to become angry at that point. It was survival, I guess. It was tomorrow. I'm going to get those tubes removed. It was. It was at nine o'clock today. I'm going to turn. At nine o'clock today, I'm going to turn Jeremy Carl on. At Eleven o'clock, it's going to finish. I'm then going to watch Homes Under the Hammer. They're then going to bring my. They're then going to bring my food round. Yeah. They're then going to bring my re- medication round. Jeremy Carl's then on again in the afternoon, and then my mum's going to turn up with to see me or with some more food at a later date mm. when I'm able to eat. To now it's now it's tea time. Now it's visiting time. Now I'm going to sleep. And tomorrow we're going to do exactly the same thing again. It was a routine of ticking boxes day in, day out to be able to slowly get better. To those staples coming out to, okay, today we're going to take out your drain in 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 the back. Today we're going to take out the other drain that you've got. Um, today we're going to stop using your central line to actually we're now going to take you down for a procedure to take your stent out that you that I had in my kidneys at the time to to the 
to actually now being able to with two nurses instead of three nurses be able to move to the side of the bed to sit there to then eventually get into the point of I remember the first time that I wiggled my toes and the first time I moved my one leg in the middle of the night and the euphoria I had from moving that one leg to standing up for 10 seconds before blacking out because I hadn't stood up for months to then standing up for a little bit longer the next day to again at 28 years old using a Zimmer frame and the physio, God, I still hate her but I love her because she stood there one day and she got hold of my Zimmer frame and she said, you've got two choices. One of them is the floor and one of them is follow me. And she just snatched it out of my hands and walked. I had a choice and that was to follow her. So I followed her. She then put me back in my bed and said, we'll do that again tomorrow. I won't repeat the language that I used. <laughs> But to then, even to the point of me pulling my feed tube out and then saying, um, we need to put your feed tube back in because there's no way that you can physically eat enough food on a daily basis to put weight on. You have to have your feed tube in, otherwise you're just going to sustain the weight that you're at. To me going, bring it on. I was eating 6,000 calories a day. What weight were you at? Six stone. Six stone. Yeah. And you were, what, you are 14. So, I got 14 stone when 14 I went in. 14 stone. I, under half your regular weights mm. um and i've seen the images yeah. that, that have been shared before um you know you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation james that there were times in your life where you felt like giving up was that around this time or was was because no, this, this sound it was there yeah because i'm hearing you story thinking okay great james is making small goals he's making achievements so i'm going to do this but what, what were some we, of those dark times there? What, yeah, yeah, there were. I mean, one of the things that I don't often get to talk about, and and you will understand this far more, not being disrespectful to anybody listening to this, but you will understand this far more than anybody else. So when they bought, so what they'd basically done was the tube had gone through the back of my, it being put into my bowel to be able to feed me, and it'd gone through the back of my bowel. So when they opened me up, they took something in the region of nine liters of fluid out of my abdomen mm -hmm. when they opened me up. And what Phil did was um, he moved my stomach, missile, stomach muscles to one side and he brought my, he put a cut in the side of me here and he brought my bowel out, he brought the loop out of my, of my bowel out onto the surface, which is where the hole had gone through. Because he said, there was no point putting you back together because it would have just fallen apart again inside mm -hmm. of you. There was, there was nothing in you to help you recover or help you repair. So they'd pulled it out onto the surface and put this little bar underneath it. So I'd got this curl with a bag over the top of it. And then what actually happened was... Um, that then turned itself inside out. So I almost had this naturally developed stoma come up, appear on my stomach, which they then decided to use that as a feed tube. So now, um, or, or certainly this was the, at the time, the stoma bags were just bags. And then all of a sudden they started to come with a, with a, a tube inlet in them. And that was actually invented by my nutritionists. Wow. And that was invented for me because there was no way that they could get food into me because I wouldn't have this tube. So that was one of the things that, you know, I, I contributed <laughs> in a yeah. way. And, and that was, um, so this, so it turned itself inside out. And I remember things like, um, Phil saying, we need to, we need to stitch this up, but there's no, there's no point giving you an anesthetic because it's not going to work. So there were, whilst there was, whilst there was this goal of stepping forward and stepping forward, there was always setbacks. And, um, I should have shared it with you, but there was a letter that Phil Barrow Granath sent me that um, that actually says in there that 
um i had enormous setbacks but never seemed to really get disheartened by it but i did get disheartened by it i did cry about it i did just not want to carry on and um so it wasn't plain sailing it wasn't three steps forward and two back is still forward People go, well, that's obvious. <laughs> Here it is. But three steps forward and two back, you're still moving forward. And and like I said yesterday to somebody, you never want to be on a direct trajectory. Whilst in our heads, we would like to always be moving forward on a direct trajectory. To actually move forward and then step back gives you a chance to actually reflect on where you're going and make sure that you're making the right decisions in the in where you're moving. And all of this, all of this happening was something that I reflected on far, far later on. And that's where, for me, one step at a time comes from. That's my slogan, one step at a time. Because one step at a time, we can achieve anything that we want to. And I say to people, take cancer out of the, take cancer out of the situation and that, and that process, apart from the learning to walk bit, the only thing that makes me different to anybody else is that I had to learn to walk twice in my life. Aside of that, we're all the same. The difference is that I can remember that learning to walk process. You don't remember it because you did it between nine months and 12 months old. But if you did remember it, you'd look at things a whole lot differently. My goal was to go to the bathroom on my own. My goal was then to walk to the nurse's counter. My goal was then to walk off the ward before I got in a wheelchair and got taken to my car to go home. And then my recovery started. It's... um it's quite something and um one of the things that that literally stopped me in my tracks when i was watching your ted talk was the message that when you're a kid you you know you you best said it what 28 was it you sort of you'll learn to walk with a zimmer frame when you're a baby or toddler you'll learn to walk with a kind of like a plastic toy with a handle that you're holding on to same thing same principle same principle and i was like yeah, I never really thought about it like that. That is, um, I mean, do you remember, I mean, obviously within those kind of micro wins, I mean, I, I don't know, going to the toilet, for example, there's something that many of us take for granted. We, we just don't think about it. We just, mm-hmm. when we need to go, we go. Yeah. Um, what was it like? Can you remember the first time after your diagnosis, after being in intensive care, after that struggle. Can you remember the first time you went by yourself and no one had to come in with you? Yeah, because I remember what was looking back at me in the mirror. It was me, but it wasn't me. What do you mean by that? I was probably seven stone by that point. I'd got a bag on my stomach. I'd got scars all over me. And you hadn't seen yourself in the mirror till that point? No. Even in your room? No, I was I was on a ward. There was no mirrors in there. I hadn't seen myself in that way since I came out of intensive care. I, I hadn't seen myself going into even going into intensive care. Going coming out of intensive care is irrelevant. But I hadn't seen myself. The first time I went to the bathroom on my own was the first time that I saw myself in the mirror. I mean, what was that like? Because on on I guess on one hand you've got the euphoria of man, I got it. And man, I couldn't I couldn't move my toes a few weeks ago, a few months ago, whatever. Like I'm yeah. I've now got here. Was it almost And you've got every nurse telling you that you look better than when they first saw you come into in, come into uh, intensive care uh, or into emergency surgery, but you have no how bad did I look? And so you've got the euphoria on on one level and then you look at yourself in the mirror. What went through your mind then? 
I think I I I remember crying at that point, but I'm I'm I don't really have a particular memory of what went through my mind. But I just stood and looked at it. I remember standing and looking at it. I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing myself stood in in that toilet looking at myself to potentially then having a, a setback a couple of days later or that uh, something else happening. But you always I now always look back um and reflect as I've already said on it's like now in training I'm riding for some people this again will make sense but I'm riding 7 hours between 5 and 7 hours a day and I'm putting a power output of kind of 260 watts which is high and my average heart rate is somewhere around 122 at 31 kilometers an hour Whereas you then look back and you go, well, how far have you progressed? Well, you go, well, at the beginning of the year or this time last year, um, I was putting out 230 watts or 220 watts and my heart rate was 135. So you look back at how you've developed over, You all, we should always, we should always be moving forwards and looking forwards, but we should always just take a quick look over our shoulder to remember where we've come from. So this is the message one step at a time for anyone who's listening watching who's, who does feel lost and unmotivated this is really powerful this idea that actually it doesn't matter where you currently are mm-hmm. it's just one step at a time isn't it yeah yeah change change one thing today change one thing what one thing could you change that would make a difference I jokingly I sometimes say at speaking engagements with companies if anybody hands their notice in tomorrow morning it's not my fault because we all have the power to change the situation that we're in. There's going to be, some people would argue that, um, but essentially we do. There may be um, certain circumstances around it that are not easy to change and that need thought to change, but essentially we can all change the situation that we're in. If you're not happy with where you're living, move. Yes, there's going to be a cost involved, but how much does that cost weigh up to your happiness? Um, If you're not happy with your job, then find a new one. That might be more difficult because, but you've got to look because again, what's more important, the job that you've got or your overall happiness? How does your lack of happiness affect those people around you? Maybe there's a situation of where you've got a huge mortgage, which means you're working longer hours. But if you downsize the house and move jobs, would you have more time with your kids, which makes them happier, which in turn makes you happier, which also means that you sleep better. There's all there's, there's factors in everything, but because we're so submersed in that what's next and what do we do now, we don't sit there and go, do you know what I was, and this was 2016. So 2016, end of 2016, when um, when Louise and I, when I'd been getting the help, and Louise and I were, we'd been through a, a really tough time with it as well. And it was Christmas. Um, we'd had a really nice Christmas. We'd had some friends around for New Year, and and Louise and I sat there or stood there, New Year's Eve. Everybody had gone. We were just about to go to bed, and we were just talking, and it was a little bit about what. So what are we going to do next year? Where do we, we're going to be okay, aren't we? What, where do we go? And I saw, I remember saying that um, I needed to, I needed to 
do the I needed to do Race Across America because I'd been told so many times that I would be good at Race Across America and it was something that was sitting in my head I didn't want to get to the point of where I asked myself could I have done well at Race Across America now was the time for me to do it or or not but first of all I needed to go back and break the seven day world record if I couldn't break the seven day world record there was no chance of me being able to do Race Across America and what's the seven day world record so the seven day world record was 1,700 miles I think at the time in seven days but it's a different rule set to Race Across America so you have to use um, a standard road bike um, and you have to ride it for as many miles as you can a day for a seven day period no hand ups from vehicles so you can't be passed anything out of the window of a car um, it has to be very traditional you ride a bike and is this a qualifying event no no, it's not but for me it was if i can do the seven day world record then that puts me instead to be able to gain the sponsorship that i need to be able to do race because of course it costs a lot of money huge amount right that's the other thing we haven't really thought about that's a whole nother that's a whole whole nother (laughs) but but, but let's just right 2008 you get your first cancer diagnosis um you know you, you end up few months later with this kind of uh, turning up in intensive care you 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 subsequently find out that your bowel was opened out all over the table you know you weren't going to survive all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff right yeah. you get to the point where you can now go to the toilet by yourself you see your face in the mirror and you're pretty shocked by yeah. you to the point where you say actually i don't know who that guy is yeah right at some point then you get out there's two more big incidents in your life as part yep. of that story. What comes next? Um, so the the next bit was the recovery and wanting to give back to to the people that to wanting to give back to the people that had been there for me. So Phil Bargranath and Charlotte, who we've we've talked about, um, and that became looking for a challenge. And that challenge was to cycle across America. The idea. So this is not race across America. No, this, this is, is just. Ci- this is this is just cycle. Well, this is just. <laughs> this is to cycle across America. This is nothing to do. I didn't even know race across America existed at this point. In so time. is this a a race to cycle? It's just a no. no I'm going to cycle a, around. I'm going to ride from LA down to San Diego, and then I'm going to ride across to Austin, Texas, and then I'm going to go to Jacksonville, and then I'm going to go down to Miami. So, like someone is, might say, I'm going to do a marathon. Can you sponsor me? Yeah. Your version of that was, I'm going to cycle across the entire america (laughs) and raise some money for cancer yeah and the reason how that came about was a a, a combination of a couple of different things one of them being that i'd gone through this hungover thing and didn't want to go back into that way of life so to speak um and looking for something that i could do so i found um six days in the midwest of america as a mcmillan challenge i found the rocky mountains as a as a uh, Millen challenge there was there was a couple of other things john agroach to land's end over sort of nine days but for me there was something that sat in my head that said that these weren't challenges caveat that's not me saying that they're not challenges and i take my hat off to anybody that's taking on on a challenge for me weighing six stone being unable to lift my own head off a pillow was a challenge not riding a bike for between six and nine days so i wanted i wanted to find something that was big Mm. now the difficulty that i had with getting my head around riding across europe was different continents different sorry different countries different cultures um different languages and i found that a little bit too daunting and then the idea of cycling across america came up and i jumped at it Mm. and the idea was that um i'd seen i'd seen phil barrow um july the 25th 
I'd seen him and he'd told me this was after they'd put my bowel back in and put everything back together. And he told me that whilst I'd been in, they'd done another scan and the tumour was continually regressing and getting smaller. So technically in his eyes, I was in remission and I was all good and please never darken my doorstep again. Mm. Just Phil and I used to have various debates. And the one debate that I always talk about was when I came out of having the, my barrel put back together and he came in and I was eating chocolate and ice cream. And he said, you're on fluids only. And I went, yep. And he said, so why are you eating chocolate and ice cream? I went, they're fluids. He went, no, they're not. I went, technically they're fluids, but they can maintain a solid state in a different environment. <laughs> to which he just looked at me and went, do what you want, James, in a nice way, yeah. and just walked off. Um, and the next day he came round and I and and he said, right, so have you been to the toilet? Is everything all right? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's good. And I said, can I go bungee jumping now? And he was like, just leave, just <laughs> just, just leave, James. So my mum picked me up and off we went. So we we have this great relationship. Yeah. Um, and um, I'd been in to see him and um, said to him that I'm thinking of doing this ride across America. Um, and that was where the 5% conversation came up. So the idea of riding across America was we would finish in Miami on the 25th of July, which would be a year to the day of being given the all clear. I would celebrate my 30th birthday in Austin, Texas. So we'd do it in 2010. Um, I'd always wanted to go to America on my birthday because it's the 4th of July. So it's American Independence Day. I'd always wanted to to feel what that was like. Um, and um, that was the plan. And, and I celebrated my 30th birthday in um, Austin, Texas. And then six days later, just outside New Orleans, I was hit by a truck at 70 miles an hour from behind. It put me 120 feet down the road. It broke three of my ribs. It smashed up all my elbow. It took all the skin off my legs. Um, the guy that, um, that was riding with me was in was in a very bad way. Um, but I spent three days in hospital, um, then got a lift across to Miami and flew home. But it was $15,000, which my surgeon looked at and he was like, these things just don't cost that kind of money. That, I mean, it was like staying at the Hilton. The hospital was literally, you push a button and you order what any food you want. Mm. It, it really was that extreme. And people are like, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's what it was like, but everything has a cost. Yeah. You got um, a bill at the end. Yeah. Um, I remember laying by the side of the road and the ambulance driver picking me up and saying, um, do you, do you have a way of paying for your treatment? Are you able to pay for your treatment? That was his main question. Are you able to pay for your treatment? To which I was like, yeah. Um, I was next to a fire ants nest. So they were pretty worried about the fact this fire ants nest could erupt at any moment. And they wanted to get me moved as soon as they could. But I, I came back to the UK. Um, you were hit at 70 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're just on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that actually, this is a debate that goes on continuously, but I got my headphone in one ear. One of the doctors said that that potentially saved me from having far more injuries because I didn't hear it. It's that whole, it's that whole baby falls over, picks itself straight back up again. Adult falls over, tries to upset themselves and falling over and breaks their wrists. Because you're so relaxed. You didn't hear it. So you, your body's just sort of, I yeah. guess, floppy and fluid yeah. and chill. Yeah. So I came back to the UK and um, within a short period of time, I decided that I was going to go back and finish what I'd started. I wanted to go back and finish it. Wait a minute. You've been knocked off your bike, right? Mm -hmm. 
could have killed you, that sort of uh, crash. It wasn't as bad as where I was 12 months before. Yeah, so this is this is the... This is what I think is so incredible about your story. One of the one of the most incredible things is this is this perspective you have on life that you're now able to bring. Because for, for many of us, that sort of bike crash, forget that. Even just walking, crossing a road and being hit at 30 miles an hour, right? Yeah, yeah. Is a, a huge trauma. It could kill us, it can have a huge impact. We may not recover from the injuries, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Did you get down on yourself when that happened? What happened? You go to the hospital, are you like, oh man, I can't believe my luck? I remember one of the things being in hospital in America was when, after I think of a day of being on the ward, one of the nurses came in and said, we need to get you walking again. And she came in with a Zimmer frame and I said, don't worry, I've done this before. <laughs> and that was, um, that was tough. I don't, think I, I don't think I did it. I don't think I stood up that time. I sat back down and said, we'll try that again later. But, I turned around and said, I've done this before. And that really... Did you mean it? Yeah. You yeah. felt that? You thought, no, no, I've, I can I've, do this. I've been hit by a truck, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm still 13, 14 stone. I'm still able to move around. I'm still able to, to do everything that I was doing before. So you actually... I'm you... not as worse as that I was. You know, and I, I, I then did a... I was going to jump on quite a way then, but I then did, and when I came back to the UK, I then rode across France to go meet up with um, some people doing an event called the Alps Challenge with Macmillan, which was three days riding in the Alps. And I rode there from Calais and I met these people. And that was when my, that was when my perception of what Macmillan was and the help that I'd got changed massively because I met these 30 people who were from all different walks of life from gardeners to accountants to a, a, a journalist to a bricklayer to, to all different walks of life. And all of a sudden, I realized that actually the care and support that I'd had it from Macmillan was from the nurses, but it was because of them. So it was because of the work that they were doing. They were riding first thing in the morning till last thing at night. They were dragging themselves up mountains in the rain, in the wind, in everything else to raise money to provide Macmillan with funding to provide those nurses with wages to be able to care for me my that picture became a whole lot bigger that all of a sudden i couldn't just go back to america and finish what i'd started i needed to go back and do the whole thing again i needed to go back to the start because i still wouldn't have ridden across america i would have ridden from la to new orleans and i would have ridden from new orleans to miami so i wouldn't have ridden across america in your head yeah so I needed to go back and do the whole thing again. So in the January, I went back and did the whole thing again. Less than six months from the accident, I was back in LA, ready to start again. It's just an incredible story. How much money have you raised so far for charity? For a selection of different charities, through my fundraising and through events that um, I've been part of with corporate partners and everybody, uh, we're over four million now. And that's Cancer Research, Macmillan, uh, UK Youth, Action Medical, Great Ormond Street. I'm on a committee um, for Great Ormond Street where we, we run an event called the Velodrome Challenge every year. Um, there's a whole host of people that are involved in that. Um, Gordon Ramsay does the food for us on, on that event. Um, they come along every year. We have a number of um, Olympic athletes and, and things that come and take part. But in four years, we've raised over a million on that event alone. 
Um, but then I've done all sorts of things from uh, B and Q having three hundred members of staff take part in the Blenheim tri- uh, sorry the London Triathlon uh, as teams of three working on on relays um, to a company called Aaron Estates Estate Agents in the South um, had I think three hundred and fifty people do Blenheim Triathlon teams of three working in in relays. So there's been a whole host of down to pig roasts and um and all sorts of stuff to people taking part in a 5k run to um the money that i've directly raised um through just giving and and virgin money and everything else it's incredible amount of money you and people you've worked with and and uh, organizations have raised Mm. um six months after that car crash you're back again in america racing okay so you do that you raise more money Mm -hmm. But there's a third part to this story as well, isn't there? Well, when I was, whilst I was riding across America for the, the second time, Louise rang me and told me that she was pregnant. That's not the, the third thing. But she rang me and told me that, that she was pregnant. And I was we were both told we'd never be able to have children. So that was a real... Because of your illness. Because and what of my through. illness and because of um, something that she went through when she was younger as well. Um, and we were told that w- there was more chance of the moon hitting Earth than me personally ever being able to have children was what I got told by my surgeons. Um, and we found out that, that she was pregnant, which for me created a very difficult mental challenge at that point, because I'd put into my head that I was never going to be able to have children. I'd worked on the basis I, I dealt with, I'd always wanted children and I dealt with the fact that I was never going to be able to have children and then found out that I was going to have a child, which I openly admit that I didn't deal with in the best way that I could have done or should have done um we've been together for for years we're we're married and we go through everything together everything that we do we do to get we're not joined at the hip but you know if if there's something that louise wants to achieve we do it together if there's something that i want to achieve we do it together if there's something as a couple we want to achieve we do it together and um you know she's she's a key part in everything we do so my crew chief and my road manager on race across america will be in daily communication with louise so some of that will be her telling them what to tell me to get the best out of me Mm. not just the other way around um and um so i we i came back from that and then i went to i went to mallorca riding i then cycled across mexico um with mcmillan again um, and then I went out to Annecy for a week riding with some friends. And then when, before I went to Annecy, I went for a, for a scan, for a checkup. And then when I got back from Annecy, I had a phone call from Andy Stockdale, um, who said that, um, they'd found something on the scan and could I come back in to see him? I went back and see him that afternoon and he said, we've found another tumor. Um, this time it's on the other side. Um, we want to do some bloods and some x-rays and we want to work out what we're doing. The difference was the first one was the size of a big grapefruit. This one was the size of a ping pong ball. So again, in my head, and in fact, I was talking about this yesterday, that um, in some respects for me, that came, that diagnosis came at the perfect time. That's weird to say, and people will take that sometimes in the wrong way. But all of a sudden I was back in the system. I was, one of the reasons why, they believe that or or the studies show that a lot of cancer patients suffer with um being left alone or elements of depression post-cancer treatment is because they're under such intense care during that treatment that there is then 
for the recovery side of it is right you're okay now back to normal yeah but what does normal now look like you've just told me that i'm that you've used the word cancer for starters and now you're telling me that I need to go back to normal, but normal looks very, very different. So for me, at that point, I'd done all of these challenges. I didn't know where I was going next or what my future looked like. And whilst I'd got the joy of having a baby on the way, I'm then being told that I've got cancer again. But for me, I was back in the system. I was back with Andy Stockdale. I was back with the McMillan nurse contacting me. I was back with a treatment plan. Mm. I was back with back in all of that. Wow. And that weirdly provided me with this element of comfort. But at the same time, I also knew that I was going to be okay because this wasn't as bad as the first time around. What a complex mix of emotions going on. I mean, what about the idea that, yes, the tumour's smaller now than what it was a few years back, but the first time you got the diagnosis, of course, you weren't expecting to be a dad. Did that come into your mind at that time when you got the diagnosis? Um, no, I don't think it did really because Freddie... Um, Freddie wasn't necessarily a reality at that point because Louise was pregnant with him, but he wasn't here. Mm. And those emotions were so strong. You know, I was, I was looking forward to that. At that point, I'd got my head around it and and every we were moving in the right direction together. Mm. But essentially, um, it was about getting better for freddie we didn't know he was a freddie at that time and we didn't want to know whether it was a boy or a girl but in my head i was always saying he's going to be a boy there's been no girls born into our family for years and then so so there was it was about getting better but i still i still carried on doing events i still did the great swim series i still did um the london to paris over three days with an event company called hot chili who who i do quite a bit of stuff with to um then so it took us from june right the way through till September to actually find a surgeon that would do the operation. Nobody wanted to do it. They all looked at my file and they all looked at the tumour and where it was and said, don't want to do it. Too risky. Because of um, being too risky because of, um, they thought that the wall of my, they thought that everything had glued together inside of me because of the amount of surgery that I'd already had. Mm. They didn't know what that they were going into. So um, it was a guy called uh, Cockleberg, um, who we found in Leicester that was actually going to do the operation. Um, and I went to see him for a consultation and he sat there and he said, I don't want to do it. I need to speak to, to Andy because I don't want to do this. There needs to be another way around this. He got in touch with Andy and Andy said, there is no other way around this. Um, so he agreed to do the operation and we went through the whole list of everything that could go wrong. That that illustrious list. You, yeah you know this could happen that could happen um you probably won't be able to have any more children after this you might not even be able to have intercourse after this you might be it might be um that we do the operation and you're in hospital for three days it might be that we have to do an operation and you're in intensive care for a week and in hospital for another five or six weeks after that and it was the whole the usual um list of worst case scenarios and what are you hearing as you because you've sort of semi been here before right what yep. are you hearing as the surgeons the doctors are, are going through this list um i'm i'm partly scared of it but at the same time i've been through this before so this isn't new territory by this point in time you started to you understand and i talk to people about the fact that you have to remember that 
um, in the nicest possible way, you have to remember a doctor is never going to give you best case scenario. It's too risky for them. And, and you know, Phil Barragranath was dragged to a tribunal because he apparently did something running surgery. All the guy was doing was trying to save somebody's life. Mm. You know, he, he does it day in, day out. I'm stood here because, because he took a chance. He openly, Phil Barragranath openly admitted, if I hadn't have been as young as I was and as fit as I was when I went into hospital, they'd have put me in the corner and made me comfortable. He openly admitted that. If he hadn't of whichever way you want to put it, but if you want to put it, if you want to put it bluntly, if he hadn't taken a gamble and done that operation, I wouldn't be here now. Am I grateful for him taking that gamble? God, yeah. Yeah, I love, I love the guy. He's the inspiration behind everything that I do. And I, I, there's lots of other inspirations and people sometimes say to me, who's your inspiration? And they expect me to turn around and go, Lance Armstrong, Brad Wiggins, or other high-profile celebrities. That guy. Mm-hmm. Because without him, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So I'd already been through all of that before. So yes, there's an element of hearing it. There's an element of do you listen to it? My granddad always used to say the secret to, a, to 65 years of marriage is the difference between listening and hearing. So he used to say about my nan. <laughs> but... And, great advice and it is great advice <laughs> so i that's kind of where i was at that point in time thankfully i remember i went to the alps i did a three-day stage race again with hot chili uh, which finished on the saturday i flew home on the sunday and i went into hospital on the monday morning to have the tumor removed freddie was born two weeks later i spent three days in hospital um i remember waking up and the um I remember waking up and the anaesthetist saying that they'd managed to get it with keyhole, but he'd spent half an hour working out how he could get my tattoo back together down the side <laughs> in case they needed to go in that way because it wouldn't have wouldn't have married up in the same way that, that it would have done. And and I spent three days in hospital and I went home and I then um Freddie was born two weeks later. I two weeks after that I started chemo. I did um I did a week of chemo just as a, as a flush. And then after that, I did radiotherapy once a week for six weeks. I think it was, um, off the back of that. And then, um, started the recovery process in, in 2012 and where we went from there. Yeah. Three huge, huge incidents in your life, which of course have taught you so much. One of the things that really just made me stop when going through your story was when I think it was you and your wife have said that dealing with cancer was easier than dealing with depression. Mm -hmm. When did the depression start? I think it was after that from what I can tell. It was, yeah. And again, that's something for people to get their head around because cancer is the thing that it, it strikes fear into people's hearts, the thought that they or a close family member or loved one may get cancer at some point, right? Yet that idea that depression was harder than cancer. You can see cancer. You can, and, and metaphorically, you can see it. Somebody tells you that it's there. Somebody tells you that that is within your system and this is how we're going to deal with it. This is the process that we're going to take to deal with it. There's no, you can't see depression. You can't, it's not a material. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. There's there's no material substance to it. 
it's waking up one minute feeling fine to the next minute not feeling fine or it's to waking up in the morning and questioning why you've even woken up it's to waking up in the morning and, and being awake but your bed being this special place that's got a force field around it that nothing can get through and as long as you stay in that bed you're going to be okay whereas cancer or any other illness or many other things somebody's sitting there and saying this is what's wrong with you that's the only way that i can really put a description on those two things and it took that um picture that your son drew i thought i was fine i didn't identify it i thought i was fine i thought i was um goes back to being in third gear yeah i was just going through the motions you said before that you were angry at cancer um and that that stopped in 2016 right i'm i'm interested here that this hidden illness the depression that you and your wife are describing as harder than cancer mm -hmm. and you've articulated the reasons why you think that might be how important was it in your recovery to let go of that anger and that resentment hugely hugely important hugely important and i think um there was a combination of a couple of things that happened there, there was the whole route finishing me coming back freddie drawing that picture there was trek bikes picking me back up as a as a supported athlete which i'd been with them years ago various things had happened internally that they weren't able to be able to support me anymore and they'd said they'd get me back when they could to them getting me back and saying that they wanted to work with me to um having dean downing um who is my coach i'd met him a few times before but we, we became a lot closer in 2016 to him becoming part of of everything that i was doing and him almost understanding me and what i was capable of doing to me saying i want to go for the world record and would you help me with it to him saying yeah i'll i'm there i'll i'll support you through it definitely um so there was there was a combination and getting that help talking to talking to several different people about my experience and what had happened and then so a combination of those things happening and looking at them and going actually instead of being angry i need to be grateful instead of being unhappy i need to be humble and go actually since this happened i've been involved with trek bikes i've been involved with adidas i've got my best friend mark sinclair who who is at adidas i've got ross turner who's also my best friend being both joint best man at my wedding to riding some of the best cycling amateur cycling events in the world to being able to speak at places such as macquarie bank morgan stanley bank and all of these places and none of that would have actually happened if i hadn't have been through those situations if i mark sinclair openly admitting to me that being involved with me cycling across america um to raise money for charity was a really good feel-good factor for adidas as a brand but the fact that when i got hit by a truck and turned around and said i'm going back to do it again took it to a whole nother level that changed everything yeah. that changed everything to then going back and doing it again and continuously trying to move forward and tell this story and raise this money all of a sudden it goes from instead of being angry let's not physically try to be grateful for what i've been through um 
and I'm not I'm not suggesting that I am grateful for what I've been through, but my story and my life would look the polar opposite of what it is now if I hadn't been through those things. I, I get the sense that you are grateful for what you've been through. Like, I don't know if that's fair uh, to say or not. And, and I, I don't I think wanna... I, I think I, I know I agree with you. I think I am grateful. But again, the public perception, I don't want people to turn around and go, who's this guy sitting there saying he's grateful yeah. for having is, cancer? That's, that's, that's... Is, could it be a fear of saying that? Because actually, what will people think? Because for me, it seems very much as though cancer woke you up. Yeah. Woke you up to the reality of what it is to be alive and breathing and going to the toilet by yourself yeah. and interacting with the world. And, and I, I, I get this strong sense that if I could summarize it all from my perspective, it's, it's almost as if it flipped a switch where now, instead of being a sort of passive recipient of life, you have become like an active participant and you have gratitude for being here yep. instead of simply taking it for granted yeah completely what is it we we all have two lives we start living it and when we realize we've only got one it's just um it's just an incredible story it's an incredible story and i can't stop thinking about you going to the toilet by yourself for the first time honestly yeah. like i really think that that person who's listening or watching right now who's struggling to get out of bed and struggling to make sense of their life, many of them probably can go to the toilet by themselves, right? And therefore, you're able to look at that and go, what an incredible experience. Well, I'm, I'm so grateful that I can actually do that. Do you ever do you ever feel that when you're out somewhere? Do you ever yeah. think, man, I can, I can do this by myself? Yeah, all the time. The, 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 the brain is we shut our brains down too easily it's it's always there there's always that memory kicking around and it will always come up at the the not the most inappropriate times but there's always something there to give you a, a little reminder something happens we we talk about it you know senses whether there's a smell or a vision or something that you see that just takes you back to somewhere or other and we should just pause a little bit and go yeah hold on and remember and think about where that's taken us back to and think about what that was like at that point in time and that goes back to what i was saying about you know i i want to i want to move on from i want to move on from that cancer diagnosis and that cancer story i don't want to forget it i don't want to i will use it in speaking engagements i will use it when i'm talking to people about my experience but i want to move on from that onto something else now mm. but still people to realize that and and it's about in some respects it's it's like when i talk to people who are going through cancer at the moment and they tell their colleagues or people that they that they know that they've got it they don't want any sympathy from people for them having it but they just want them to remember that if tonight they don't want to come out it's because of they've got other stuff going on mm -hmm. in their heads so i i don't want my life to be structured around that six months of my life because there's so much more that we've done yeah. or three years there's so much more that we've done in terms of working with companies inspiring people to 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 the charities that i work with to the kids that i'm a trustee of the charity for to the world record that i've broken you know i broke a world record how many people that are able-bodied have, have gone and broken a world record you know it's still a world record that i went and broke whether i've had cancer or not 
to then being able to stand on the start line of Race Across America, whether I've had cancer or not, I'm still standing on the start line of the world's toughest bike race. How will this... How will these experiences that you've been through help you in three weeks' time when you are, what did you say, two hours sleep a night whilst mm. trying to ride for maybe eight days, yeah. seven, eight days? To, to they'll, they'll help massively thing. more in a subconscious than they will in a, in a conscious. But what happens, like, many of us, we set ourselves challenges in, in relation to where we are in our lives. So for someone that could be, I want to walk around the block, right? You yeah. full well know that challenge, yeah. right? Uh, for some people, it might be, I want to do my local park run. Uh, you know, I can't run at the moment, but I'd love to do that 5K on a Saturday. Go and walk it. Yeah. Go and walk the 5K. Yeah. Or walk, walk to the 5K. I was about to say this, that, you know, if if you're, if there are those people there that, that, that don't want to get out of bed, that don't want to get up, that don't want to go and do something, make one small change. Okay. You, you, you're in bed five days a week. Get up for one day a week. Just, mm. get, just get out of bed once in that five days. You want to go outside, but you haven't been outside in however long. Just go and stand on the porch just or stand in the hallway and open the front door. Yeah. That's, we don't, you know, we, the problem is, is that we sometimes get carried away with, okay, I'm going to go and do, I'm going to go and do 5K, then I'll do 10, then I'll do 15, then I'll do 20. Yeah. But hold on a minute, you've not done the five yet. You've not, you don't even own a pair of trainers. So go on Amazon and buy a pair of trainers. You know, and if you want to run that 5K, yeah. if you can't walk that 5K, you're not going to run that 5K. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's clearly documented in so many different places that you've got that 5K route that's there. If you want to do a park run, it's on the same route every week. So go up one Wednesday night when there's nobody there. Just Or go at six o'clock in the morning when there's nobody there and just go and walk it. And then walk it again a couple of days later or walk it once a week, then walk it twice a week, then walk it and run 1K, run half a K, run five meters. Yeah. And slowly build up from there because your your resilience will will increase. I spoke to a guy, I spoke to a guy yesterday um, and he was saying to me that he's, he sort of said, you know, you're, you're telling me about your story makes my 10 miles on a bike look insignificant. I said, it's not insignificant. He said he really enjoys it. He really likes doing it. I said, your goal now isn't to go to 22 hours a day. Your goal is to go from 10 miles to 12 miles, from 12 miles to 14 miles, and then from 14, da 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 up to 30. But you know what? If you then go out one day after that and you can only manage 20, don't get disheartened because you're still 20 miles ahead of you were when you started to do your 10. Three steps the- forward, one step back, you're still going forward, Correct. right? You're still going forward. Yes. Yeah. So if you, if you do that 10, 10, 10, 15, 20, 20, 20, 20, and then you end up back at 15, you're still further ahead than you were. Yeah. And don't get disheartened by that. Because if you want to jump forward, you always take a step back. There's analogies that all over the place. You you, you can take inspiration from everything that we look at. I tell you what, they don't sound like cliches when they come out of your mouth. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? In the context of your story... Some of these things, I think, sometimes can sound trivial to people, can sound, oh, that's a cliche. I mean, first of all, most cliches are cliches because they're true. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something about hearing them in the context of your story that I think makes them incredibly powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I, Phil Jones, who you met earlier, he really helped me um, a long time ago with the whole inspirational thing because I don't see myself as being 
inspirational. I see myself as being James Golden, who's been through whatever and has a story. And I tell that story and people would say, you're really inspirational. I'd be like, oh, I'm just me. I'm no different to anybody else. We're all, we're all the same. Mm. Um, and um, I now, I now take his point a bit that if people are listening to my story and they take inspiration from it, that means I'm inspirational. And I take that and all I want to do is people that hear my story to either take something from it um, that helps them improve the way that they are or what they're doing, or even if it doesn't help them, it helps them turn around and help somebody else. Yeah. That's it. And and again, with the kids that we work with um, through the Buffalo Foundation, if I can, I said over the last couple of weeks, if I can help or have an impact on helping a hundred kids, for example, two of them may go on to achieve greatness and be amazing, but 50 of them may go away from it thinking, okay, I'm not going to make it great, but I'm going to help another 10 kids or I'm going to help 20 kids or I'm going to help 30 kids. And then those 30 kids may then turn around and help and support another 20 or 30 kids. And it's continuously paying forward. It's not, it's not, those two are, are special and are important, but it's about the small impact that we can have on so many other people's lives, kids, adults, whoever that is, that small impact, acorns growing to big trees. We, we, another cliche, we can, we can, we can have a small impact on somebody's life that leads to a massive change. Yeah. And we, we all have the ability to be able to do that in some way, shape or form. And I'll keep doing this for as long as I can keep telling my story that that it inspires people and it encourages them to either take that step themselves or enables them to then go on and help somebody else to take their next step. James, it has been such a joy chatting to you. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you have. Um, I, I know you're inspiring people. We definitely need to do a part two at some point. Love to. Um, but in the meantime, I wish you all the best. Thank you. I really do. Thank you. Cheers, man. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, I just want to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. Now, in this email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you constantly feed back to me and tell me that this is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday five. And if you are brand new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world. I've covered all kinds of topics, 
happiness, food, stress, sleep, movement, behavior change, weight loss, and more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And do remember that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is available for a really small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.